Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. invite you to take your copies of the scripture this morning, open to the book of Galatians, Galatians chapter 4, verses 8 through 11. And I was reminded this morning, uh, just even reading through the book of Luke, before we get to Galatians, something that Jesus said about the people who were complaining about the kind of company that Jesus was keeping. Tax collectors, prostitutes. Jesus says in Luke 7, to what then shall I compare the people of this generation and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating, with no, eating, eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Just a reminder, the world does not set Christ's agenda. You hear it there. What does the world say? We played the flute for you. What should you do? Dance. We sang a dirge for you. What should you have done? You should have wept. What does Jesus say? The world does not set my agenda. The world does not tell me how I'm supposed to act or what I'm supposed to do or how I'm supposed to minister or what I'm supposed to accomplish in my life. He's come to do his Father's will. He came and did what no one would expect. Made me think, what kind of company I keep? What kind of company do you keep? But someone might say, why them? Why would Jesus keep company with sinners and tax collectors? Because he loved them. Because he saw that they were souls that needed to be saved. So with that in mind, let's read Galatians 4 together, verses 8 through 11. Would you stand with me as I read out of respect and reverence for God's word? Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, incline our hearts to your testimonies. Open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things out of your law. Unite our hearts to fear your name. Satisfy us this morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. 
There is a song. Maybe you've heard this song before. Maybe you've sung this song before. Perhaps it brings back some memories of a day at a Christian youth camp or youth retreat or even singing as a child in Sunday school in the basement of your church as it does to me. It's that song entitled, I Have Decided to Follow Jesus. Song's first verse is fairly straightforward. Three times singing, I have decided to follow Jesus. And then followed by two times singing, no turning back, no turning back. In fact, it's where we see the title of our message this morning. It's a song that had its origins in India. And from what I can find, a song that is no doubt written with all sincerity and with all earnestness. But I would argue that such thinking and such teaching has become a theme that has greatly damaged, if not destroyed, the church in America. That's a, that's a big statement. That's a massive statement. Maybe you would even question that statement. Really? I'm not saying that song has done it single-handedly. I'm saying the thinking behind this song, as we hear it with our Western ears and understand it with our Western minds, the teaching that is there has caused great destruction. And the thinking, the teaching is this. Your conversion is based on your decision. Or, as one preacher explains it this way, Listen carefully. This is the belief that at the moment of conversion, man must be decisive and in decisive control of whether saving faith happens. Let me say what he says one more time. This is the belief that at the moment of conversion, man must be in decisive final control of whether saving faith happens. We hear it when someone would say, you need to make a decision for Jesus. Or, how many decisions have been made for Jesus? Do you see any glaring problems with this? I hope you do. I hope you see fundamental problems by saying that this is what happens at conversion. And there should be alarm bells that are going off in our minds. Let's just talk about three problems quickly. They follow one after another. First, let's ask this question. Who is in control at the moment of conversion? According to this, man is put in the driver's seat. Man is in control. My own self-autonomy plays the key and decisive role in my salvation. Not God. God is not in control at that moment. I am in control, and it is my decision, and my decision alone that decides whether saving faith happens in me. And there is this false thinking that if it's not a decision of my own will, where I am in complete control at the moment, then salvation becomes meaningless. But let's just ask a question. Who would you want to be in control at that moment? Jesus, you can take the wheel after I've made my decision. God, you can be sovereign after I decide. We understand this because we understand the human heart. What does the human heart love above all else? Human heart loves naturally self. I love myself. And it's this love of self that the thought of being out of control actually terrifies us. No, we want control. That's even seen in the moment of conversion. And it's no one's decision but my own, apart from God. But that leads us 
to a second glaring problem. If God is not in control at the moment of conversion, if it is rather a decision of your will that determines whether saving faith happens in you or not, then what? Then nothing miraculous happens at conversion. We are those who say conversion is something that is a miracle. Conversion is something that is supernatural, that happens within the person. Something wrought by God that he does in us. And think about this. Christians for the last 100, 150, maybe 200 years have been fighting against the academy have been fighting against academia, have been fighting against higher education because higher education have been wanting to strip the Bible, to strip Christianity of anything supernatural or miraculous. That we would say, we believe that Jesus Christ healed lepers supernaturally. We believe that Jesus Christ walked on water. We believe that Jesus Christ fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. We believe that Jesus Christ rose people from the dead. We believe that Jesus Christ himself rose from the dead. We've been fighting for what is supernatural in the Bible, saying, no, this is what happens. This is what God did. This is what God does. But what happens when we say at the moment of conversion that that's not supernatural, that we take away the super and that we're just left with the natural? Haven't we already sold the farm? We say from beginning to end, God's doing a supernatural work, and that even starts with our own conversion with me. What's happened in my life? It's been something miraculous. What would you rather have? Would you rather have a natural work of your own doing in your life to bring you to God? Or would you rather have the supernatural, miraculous work of God in your heart and in your life and in your mind bring you to God himself. It's, I hope, compelling. That gets to a third problem, a third repercussion. If this is the case, if it's all decisional based, if it's at the moment of conversion, my decision, and I'm in control, who is it that gets all of the glory? If I'm in control of whether saving faith happens or not, does God get the glory? Or do I get the glory? What does the Bible say? Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back. What assurance do we have in that other than our own effort and our own struggle in trying not to turn back? And how natural would it seem that if I can decide for Jesus, can't I just as easily decide against Jesus? If I can convert myself, then perhaps at the back end, the same way, I can deconvert myself. And we let doubt and lack of assurance and lack of security in our salvation slip in through where? Not even through the back door, through the front door. At the very beginning of the Christian walk, of the Christian life. We realize that this temptation of turning back is a real temptation in the life of the believer. And Paul here in Galatians is combating this temptation, saying, how can you turn back? Don't turn back. And he's drawing our minds, he's drawing the Galatians' mind back to the miracle that's happened in them. He's drawing their minds back to what happened at their conversion. He is drawing their minds to what God has done in them and what God is doing in them. 
And we have to realize that this temptation is real. To turn back to what once enslaved us after hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. How could we ever think of that? Right after Paul has just shown us how Christians have moved from being slaves to being sons. Now he says, you are sons, so how could you ever dream of going back? Why would you ever turn away from Christ? And do we encourage each other in this way? We realize that such temptation is real and a struggle that we would encourage one another, even as Paul is encouraging us here. Let us not think that this would never happen to us, that we would never be tempted to fall away, but let us be sober-minded Sober-minded, even as we think about all those who would make a shipwreck of their faith. Let us heed the warning with soft hearts and listening ears. And so we've seen Paul here and be encouraging us not to turn away from Christ. And we saw last week, do not turn away from Christ because you are known by God. And we saw that's a comforting thought. There's this progression, you did not know God, verse 8. So now you know God, verse 9, and then what does Paul say? Or rather, he corrects himself, you're known by God. We talked about that as what should be our heart's desire, although that can be a terrifying thought because being known by God means that he knows all of you, not just part of you, and that you've been chosen by him. We like the thought of knowing God, but when we are known by God, it's a whole different ballgame because then our hearts are open to Him. (laughs) And when we're known by God, what happens? When God knows every intricate part of your heart, what happens? When God says, This is something that needs to change. What's our response? God, you know me. You know every part about me. And so if there's something that I need to change, if there's some area in my life that needs to be corrected, then if you know me and you've shown me by your word and by your spirit, then I will. I will change. So we are known by God. But number two, you can follow along there in your bulletins if that's helpful today. But number two, do not turn away from Christ because you will exchange freedom for slavery to idols. You will exchange freedom for slavery to idols. You will exchange freedom for slavery to idols. Paul here again draws us back to our former life. And in the minds of the Galatians, he draws them back to their former life. Verse 8, formerly when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. Paul wants the Galatians to think about who they were before Christ, before they knew God. Oftentimes Christians might want to forget that. I don't want to remember my former life. I want to ignore that. But Paul calls it to our attention because it, it's helpful. Paul reminds us of who we, we were because it serves a purpose in the present, even in our present walk with the Lord. So who were the Galatians? Who were we? We were idolaters. We worshipped idols. Idolatry is what takes place In the heart that does not know God. Something has to fill that void in our hearts. That void cannot be left empty. If it's not filled by knowing God and being known by God, we will seek to fill it with something else. And the only thing that we're left to fill in our hearts, if there's no God, if God is not there, is to fill it with idols. These are the two ways to live. Either it's living, worshiping the true creator, God, who is blessed forever, amen, or it's lived enslaved to idol worship. There is no in-between. We are worship beings. We must worship something or someone. That's the way that God has designed us. We are created 
to worship. We must never think that worship can be neutral. We are never Switzerland. You will either be worshiping the true God or you will be worshiping those which are not gods. I love what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. Talking about those Thessalonians, he says, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how they did this. They turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. They turned to God from idols. That's our story, brothers and sisters. We've turned to God from idols. And I believe that's everyone who's ever been converted. Everyone who is not worshiping the true God through Jesus Christ is an idolater. They're worshiping something that by nature are not gods. You elevate no gods to the level of God. You bow down to them, you submit to them, and you serve them. And look at how these idols here are described. Remember that the elementary principles of the world are any of those things in this world that we would worship and become an idol in our lives, anything that we would elevate or exalt in our hearts. Paul says that we were enslaved to these idols. We were in slavery. It shows what kind of power and what kind of authority they had in our life before we came to Christ. Even though, what does it say? They were weak, even though they were worthless. They should have held no power over us. They should have not been worshipped because they were not worthy of any praise whatsoever. They were by nature no gods. And yet we were enslaved to them. And yet we worshipped them. Turning your Bibles for a moment to Romans chapter 1 again. Romans 1, verses 19 through 20. Romans 1, 19 through 20. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes. Now listen. For his invisible attributes, namely what? His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse. Think about what that says and now what we see in Galatians. You were enslaved to things that by nature are not God's, even though you had seen, even though it was clearly portrayed, even though it was put on display, the divine nature of God. That was there. In the things that were made, you could see God's divine nature, but you worship something that by nature are no God's. How blind we were, how depraved we were, how dead we were. God's divine nature had been put on display for us, and we exchanged that saying, no, 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 I don't want that. I don't want God in his divine nature. I want to be enslaved to those things that by nature are not God's. And I believe Paul here is contrasting something of vital importance. He is Contrasting the idols, those who are not gods, the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world with God. And he's saying this, these are the idols that you are wanting to turn back to. Let me show you what you are doing. Whatever you are worshiping in, you are partaking in that thing's nature. So, if you are worshiping things that are by nature not gods, you are partaking in their nature. What do we know about idols? What do we know about their nature? They have no divine nature. They cannot impart life. They are lifeless. They are weak. They are worthless. They are dead. But if you have come to worship God through Jesus Christ, you don't partake in the nature of those things that are not gods. What? You know you partake in the divine nature of God. So, you hear what I'm saying? For Christ, 
We're partaking in the nature of things that are not God's. We're partaking in the nature of idols that have no divinity in them whatsoever. But now that we know God through Jesus Christ, we have the privilege of partaking in the divine nature of God. Do you believe me? Let's look at it. 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. You should have said no. I said, do you believe me? You should have said no. Show me. So I'm going to say, okay, here I'm showing you now. 1 Peter verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 4. Actually, I'll start in verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become what? Partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. What is Peter saying here? You are partakers in the divine nature of the almighty God. And we're being told that the whole Bible tells us you become what you worship. You're going to worship those things that are by nature not God's. You are going to become like them, lifeless, weak, and dead. But if you worship the one and true living God, if you worship the Son of God who died on the cross and rose again from the dead, who ascended into heaven and is now at the right hand of the Father, if you worship the author of life, you will be made alive. You will gain divine strength, Christ's power working through you, through his all-sufficient grace. You will live as the one who's been resurrected from the dead. You will be a divine partaker of the divine nature of God. The one through his divine power has granted to us all things that we need that pertain to life and godliness. What have you been given that you do not need? God has given you everything, my friend, everything that you need to live for him. And now you have partaken in his divine nature. And do you see what it says there at the end of that? In, in 2 Peter 1.4, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. It's in fact the divine nature that you need to partake in so that you can flee from those idols, so that you can flee from that sin, so that you can flee from that corruption that is in the world. How we're warned even in Psalm 115, verses 4 through 8 about this, which says this, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them, what? Become like them, so do all who trust in them. Is there any greater reason to desire Christ, to trust in Christ, to treasure Christ? I do that because I want to be made alive, because I want to live, to spiritually live as one who possesses eternal life now. It's why I don't want to turn back, to, that's why I don't want to exchange my freedom that I have in Jesus Christ for slavery to idols because I am now a partaker of God's divine nature. How could I exchange all, exchange all that God is, all that God has done, all that God has given to me in Christ Jesus? It's inconceivable in Paul's mind. You have freedom in Christ. Freedom from the dominion of sin. Freedom from the curse of death. Freedom to obey Christ and live for him. And it is the worst trade in the world to trade freedom for slavery. It doesn't make any sense at all. And Paul offers us a wake-up call. Christians, beware. This is dangerous. Look and see just how absurd it is that you would even consider giving up your freedom for bondage. Who would desire to be slaves once again, once they've tasted the sweetness of freedom? Who would go back to that harsh taskmaster reminds me even of that proverb 
2 Peter 2.22 says it. The dog returns to its own vomit. And the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. What a terrible end. Yet what kind of freedom do people so often desire? What kind of freedom would the the Galatians gain if they go back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world that would be their gods once more? They would gain the freedom of a train with no tracks. They would gain the freedom of a kite with no string. They would gain the freedom of a fish with no water. A freedom that is no freedom at all, but a freedom that would only lead to their destruction. At this point, we might be wondering why the Galatians would even entertain such a thought. We see the very subtlety of idolatry. Not every idol comes with flashing lights around its neck that says, warning, warning, idol. We see the deception of idolatry here in verse 10. What does Paul say? You observe days and months, seasons and years. Here, Paul is referring to those Jewish festivals, those Jewish holidays that would be a staple in the Jewish religion. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying this. Watch out, dear Christian. Even your religious activity can be idolatry. Do you understand what Paul is comparing? He is comparing gross, detestable paganism to religiosity. How deceived are those who depend upon their religious activity to save them because they would think, and so many would think, well, at least I'm not as bad as that idolater who worships pagan idols. Well, at least I'm not as bad as that one who is enslaved to rampant uh, adultery and pornography. Well, at least I'm not as bad as that one enslaved to greed, constantly focused on money and possessions. And they list out all of the people who are blatantly enslaved to the worst things imaginable. But look here in our verses, in verse 10, the ESV, the translators, put something at the very end of the sentence. You observe days and months and seasons and years, and what's it then after that? An exclamation point. Would you have put an exclamation point here? What is Paul saying that would be deserving of being exclaimed? Why would the translators think it worthy and appropriate and accurate that they would say, this is something that Paul is exclaiming in his writing? It is the astounding claim that all of their religious activities, all of the days, months, years, and seasons that they would observe to try to get to God, to worship God, all that they do that they think will bring greater worship, that they will be more acceptable in God's eyes, all the things that they might point to to say, look, I'm okay with God, I'm right with God, in reality is gross, rampant, detestable, idolatry. The religious person does not think that he is far from God, but the irreligious and the religious can both be a slave to idols. Why is this so horrendous? Why is it just as bad as any paganism that you can imagine? Because it cuts out Christ. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians 2, 16-17. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but what? But the substance belongs to Christ. You even hear it there. They're regarding festivals, new moon, Sabbath. What does Paul say? These are all shadows of things. There's a substance, though, behind these things, and the substance is Christ. That's what you want. You want Christ. So for the Galatians to go back to observe days and months and seasons and years, what are they doing? They're cutting out Christ. 
It's like a husband being content with a picture of his wife rather than actually being with his wife. Who wants that? I want my wife. I want to be with my wife. I want the substance. As human beings, I'm afraid that we are all too good at focusing on the shadows, on that which is unimportant, on that which holds little significance, on that which doesn't really matter, all the while we miss Christ. For freedom, Christ has set you free. Why exchange your freedom in Christ to be a slave to idols? You wouldn't. It's unthinkable. To us as Christians, we see the danger, the deception, and the delusion that goes with this way of thinking, and we repent, and we say, Paul, you're right. I could never do that. I should never do that. I could never betray my Savior. I could never think that my desire would be satisfied by anyone else, any other way than by Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. And all of my religious activity can be an idol. Because all of it can be done without Christ. Third thing this morning, finally. Only those who persevere in the gospel will be saved. Do not turn away from Christ because only those who persevere in the gospel will be saved. We arrive at verse 11 and it might sound strange to our ears. Why would Paul ever be afraid that he had labored in vain over the Galatians? But Paul understood that his labor might prove fruitless among the Galatians. Paul couldn't just slough off the actions that the Galatians were taking. He doesn't just say, well, you know, you can't possibly lose your salvation, so it doesn't really matter what you do. Go ahead and live your life. But rather, it says, he is afraid. Paul is fearful here, and he warns them that his gospel ministry over them might have been in vain. It might have been for nothing. Would you ever consider that this would be the fear of a gospel minister? Would you ever, be, would you ever consider that this would be a fear of Paul's? This is the apostle Paul that we're talking about. Would we ever think that the gospel ministry that he engaged in would have been in vain? Any church that he planted? Any people that he brought to Christ? Yet here he is. Had not Paul done everything to ensure that they were grounded in the gospel, yet it would have been laboring in vain if they had lived their lives like they had never heard the gospel. That's what Paul is battling against here. That's what he's fighting for. He's saying, Galatians, be careful. You're about to go into a territory. You're about to live a way that would say that you've, to live like you've never heard the gospel before. And the Galatians were responsible for how they lived their lives. And so this verse comes as a warning to awaken them and to awaken us to examine ourselves, to look at ourselves, to go back, go back to the gospel to to live lives worthy of the gospel of Christ. And Paul is rightly concerned about this because it is those who persevere in the gospel who will be saved. And so I think he's saying this in a roundabout way. He's saying you need to continue in the gospel. You need to persevere in the gospel. And I think it's right here that we need another warning because there is a, a, a doctrine, I think, that can be deceptive, that can be dangerous sometimes, And it's beware, uh, it's this warning against this doctrine that says, once saved, always saved. I think this is also a doctrine that's done much damage to the church and Christianity in America. Even more destructive is the damage that is done to souls. To be sure, it's made many people feel good. It's given a sense of relief to some people, a sense of peace to some people. But this is all false hope if it's based on a lie. So how dangerous is this way of thinking? So dangerous that it goes against the very nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If I say that this position, this once saved, always saved position is a dangerous position, even deadly, 
what am I saying? Am I saying that someone can lose their salvation? That's what it sounds like, doesn't it? I'm not saying that. So let me say, categorically, I do not believe that you can lose your salvation. John 10, verses 20 through 30. My sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So hear me say, I do not believe that you can lose your salvation. But there is a problem with this once saved, always saved way of thinking, and it's this. They do not adequately understand repentance. They have a superficial understanding of faith, and what's more, they have a terribly weak understanding of conversion. Why would I say this? Well, these people who say once saved, always saved, it says this. This is the the thinking behind this view. They would say, all that you need to do is pray a prayer, preferably the sinner's prayer. They would say, all you need to do is walk down an aisle at the end of the service and shake the pastor's hand. They would say that all that you need to do is ask Jesus into your heart. Now, what's wrong with those? Are those so bad things? Well, there's one thing that does not bode well for them. When it comes to conversion, you don't find any of them in the Bible. That's a problem, major problem. Next, they may put a heavy emphasis on admitting that you're a sinner, but there is little evidence or little emphasis on repentance. You know there's a difference. Admitting you're a sinner and repenting from your sin are two different things. You could admit that you are a sinner and not repent of your sin. What is repentance? Repentance is turning from your sin. It's forsaking your sin. It's being grieved over your sin, hating your sin. Repenting is not only turning from your sin, it's a turning or returning to God with a desire to obey him. It's just a complete change of mind. It is repentance that flows from the mercy that comes to the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. There is something else that goes with this once saved, always saved teaching. It's the thinking that as long as one of those aforementioned actions took place, so as long as someone prayed the sinner's prayer, as long as someone walked down the aisle, as long as someone asked Jesus into their heart, as long as someone raised their hand at the end of the service, that as long as one of those actions took place, it ultimately doesn't matter how they live their life now, they're still saved. They can live and do whatever they want because it doesn't matter because once saved, always saved. And now you must begin to see the danger. If not, I put this challenge before you. I want you to scour the Bible and find where it teaches such a thing. Even find a life where the Bible says, well, this person had one moment where they said a prayer or did something, but then that person after that had a blatant disregard for God, for God and his ways. They did not demonstrate any love for God whatsoever. They did not demonstrate any love for his people in any way. They live in utter disobedience to everything that God says, and with their mouth they even blaspheme against him at every chance they get. Show me in the Bible where it says that someone can live such a way and in the next breath say, But don't worry, they're saved. Let me save you the time, my friend. You won't find it in the Bible. If that was taught in the Bible, the Bible would be a whole lot shorter. What would you do with all of the prophets? These faithful men calling people to repentance and faith to turn from their sinful ways, they could have saved a lot of breath and said, well, as long as you had one little moment where it looked good, it doesn't matter now how you live because once saved, always saved. Paul could have saved a lot of breath, couldn't he? Paul wrote to the churches. And every book that Paul is writing to the churches would go against this argument. And the damage done to souls that would think they are okay with God when in fact they are on the fast track to hell. 
completely and utterly deceived because they think it's that one action that made them good with God when they really never repented. They think that their bank account is full, but it's really completely and utterly bankrupt. And how many parents, how many grandmothers, grandfathers have tried to ease their consciences with this teaching? They look at how their sons, their daughters, their grandsons and granddaughters are absolutely ruining their lives with their godless living, with their abject rejection of Christ in every way, and they comfort themselves and coddle their troubled consciences with this thought, well, at least once saved, always saved. Now, I do not want to sound callous. Brother and sister, I know that these are our loved ones, people for whom we would say with Paul, I wish that myself were accursed, were cut off from Christ for the sake of my loved one. But let us tell ourselves the truth. Does not even abduct reasoning tell us differently? If it looks like a duck, quacks like a duck, walks like a duck, swims like a duck, and holds company with other ducks, what are we to think? Now, God can work in ways that defy our reasoning, but on this point, we never see it taught in the Bible. It never says, there are people who will have said a prayer or walked an aisle or done one thing, but then lived godless days for their entire life with no evidence of faith, no evidence of salvation, that go to their graves denying Christ, but lo and behold, you will find them to be saved all along. And again, you won't find that in the Bible. Even the thief on the cross believed, even though it was in the last moments of his life, but that's the difference. True belief, true turning, a true profession of faith, and true repentance. Now, I'm not saying that Christians won't struggle. They will. They will sometimes fail. They will sometimes fail miserably, but they always come back to Christ for cleansing. They will always repent, and the overall direction of their life will be one that is in step with the Spirit of God. But the once saved, always saved is a view that is taught by so many and too many, it is a view that is untenable in the end. So what do we need instead? We need a robust doctrine that encapsulates the true meaning of repentance, that embraces strong God-given faith that clings to Christ above all and that proclaims the miraculous nature of salvation. And that's what we find in the doctrine of perseverance. How is it that Paul will know that all of his labor over them had not been in vain if they persevere in the faith, if they endure, if they persist in the gospel, if spirit-given fruit is evidence in their life? It is God continuing to work faith in us, and it is him keeping us united to Christ. It's true saving faith that will in endure and ensure that believers persevere until the end. I love these verses that encourage us in this way. Mark 13, 13, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Hebrews 3, 13 through 14, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence, what? Firm to the end. How about one more? Colossians 1, 21 through 23. You who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him if what? If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. That's what Paul is saying to the Galatians. Don't shift away from the hope of the gospel that you've heard persevere in your faith. Paul will not have labored in vain in his ministry and it will not have been fruitless if the Galatians persevere and endure, if their lives bore gospel fruit. Are you, dear brother and sister, persevering in the gospel? Is your life filled with gospel fruit? You hear this warning from Paul and say, there's no way I could go back because God knows me. Because I've been freed in Christ. 
And because I've heard the gospel, and I must persevere. Look at all that God has done for you. See everything that God has done in you and see that you are actually bound by God, held by God, and preserved by the grace of God in your life. One final verse from Deuteronomy 15, 15 says this, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. Do you need to remember that this morning? You were once a slave. You were once enslaved to idols But the Lord your God has redeemed you. The Lord your God has released you by a payment of price of his only son, Jesus Christ, on the cross so that you can know eternal life, so that you can be forgiven, and so that you can be freed in him. Why would you ever want to go back to Egypt? Why would you ever want to turn back? God has saved you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your most holy word this morning. We pray that we would learn from it. We pray that it would teach us and transform us and make us more like your beloved son. We are those who struggle oftentimes, O Lord. We need your help. We need your assurance. We need the grace to help us persevere. So, Father, I pray that today we would, with renewed strength, keep on. Keep going. Keep living for Christ and continue to allow Christ live through us. that there be no more sin that would resist your holy word. But may we repent of that sin and again remember the miracle that's happened in us to save us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.